0: and gentlemen, and welcome back to Movies That Matter. I'm your host, Chris Flaherty. Thanks for joining us. This episode is going to be different from our first four, but I hope you enjoy it. It's just me here in the studio today because I'm talking about a movie that matters to me. And this film just celebrated its 30th anniversary last month on November 22nd. That film is Walt Disney Pictures' Beauty and the Beast. It was the 30th film from Disney's animation studio, and was directed by Gary Trousdale and Kirk Wise, written by Linda Wolverton, with music and lyrics by Alan Menken and the late Howard Ashman, and stars Paige O'Hara, Robbie Benson, Richard White, Jerry Orbach, David Ogden-Steers, and Angela Lansbury. This is my favorite film, and it's been a major part of my life, as I will get into as we get further on. Uh, For those that don't know, Beauty and the Beast is based off the French fairy tale of the same name, written by... Someone whose name I won't dare to attempt to pronounce on the microphone. One evening, as the story goes, a selfish and cruel young prince denies shelter to an old beggar woman, and unknown to him, she is a beautiful enchantress in disguise. To punish him, the enchantress transforms him into a hideous beast and puts a curse on the castle and all who live there. If the beast wishes to be human again, he must find someone to love and have her love him in return before the last petal on an enchanted rose falls on his 21st birthday fast forward years later and in a small french village we meet a lovely young woman named bell and she and her father are the town oddballs outcasts if you will her father maurice an-, an inventor leaves town on a trip to a fair but he gets lost in the woods and finds himself at the beast's castle the beast takes him prisoner thinking he's a trespasser who's come to mock him in his hideous form Fortunately, Maurice's horse makes his way back to the village to find Belle, and she goes off to find her father. She arrives at the castle, and after encountering the beast, makes a deal to take her father's place as his prisoner, and the beast agrees. The beast realizes that Belle could be the woman he could fall in love with and break the spell, as do his servants who are transformed into objects like candles, clocks, and teapots. And so we see Belle and the beast come to a better understanding of one another and grow closer as time goes on throughout the film. Side note, I always used to wonder if Belle was the first woman that the Beast has ever met and tried to quote-unquote romance. Like, did someone else stumble upon the Enchanted Castle and it just didn't work out? Or were there just a string of catastrophic courtships? That's a premise I think the production teams behind all the direct-to-video Disney sequels probably tried to workshop. But I'm glad they weren't successful. But maybe Saturday Night Live could do something with that. Beauty and the Beast, as far as I can recall, is not only my favorite film, it's the first film I ever remember watching. Like, it was one of the first wrinkles on my smooth, developing human brain. But I don't remember the first time ever watching it. The film came out the same year I was born, and I was born in February of 91. The film came out in November of 1991, and my parents definitely didn't take their nine-month-old son to a movie theater, even if it was for a Disney film. Now, my first exposure to Beauty and the Beast, according to my mother, came about two years later in 1993, but not to the film itself. My father used to work at the Boston Garden or the TD Garden, as it is now known, and he used to get us into a lot of the Disney on Ice shows. And um, kids, if you don't know what Disney on Ice is, look it up. There were a lot of fun, and they were very big in the 90s and early 2000s. I, I do think they're still around, though. Um, But we saw a Disney ice performance of Beauty and the Beast. And I guess that's where I fell in love with the characters, the story, and the music. Especially the music, and I'll explain that in a second. But that's where it all started, and I became, quote-unquote, obsessed with Beauty and the Beast and how I got introduced to this film. And I don't use the word obsessed lightly because there's a photo of three-year-old me on a family trip in California And I'm in my car seat, and I'm clinging to a VHS copy of Beauty and the Beast. And as the story goes, I carried that VHS around with me all throughout this family trip. like It was like my Captain America shield, and no one had the heart to break it to me that there would be no access to a VHS player, or I'm sorry, a VCR. There would be no access to a VCR on this trip. I said I especially fell in love with the music, and here's why. And this is where this might get a little bit embarrassing for me. For years, I would listen to the soundtrack on cassette every night as I fell asleep, or rather, I fell asleep listening to the soundtrack on cassette. And it wouldn't take one play of the cassette for me to fall asleep. It took like three to four replays a night, and like three to four times a night, my parents would hear, "Mom, Dad, can you please rewind Beauty and the Beast?" And they would go in there, and they would go there in there each time and rewind it. My poor mom and dad. You know, To me, it probably felt like, or at least it did feel like it was going really late into the night back then, but in hindsight, we probably didn't reach midnight, or I hope we didn't reach midnight. But I'm sure they were very relieved when I grew out of this habit. You know, most parents have to take turns checking on their young kids at night, but those two had to take turns rewinding a Disney cassette every night. But I give them all the credit in the world. They rewound that tape every time. And I think... This might have something to do with it because they heard the soundtrack on loop every night too. But I think my love of the film also spread to them by association. In 1994, we took a trip to see the stage adaptation of Beauty and the Beast on Broadway in New York. Now, as much as I loved Beauty and the Beast at that age, there were certain parts of the film that scared me. Mainly the first introduction of the Beast where he takes Maurice Prisoner and just anything to do with the pack of wolves in the film. So I was a little nervous, timid, if you will, to see those moments created before my eyes with real people. Um, I don't think I sat in my purchase seat the entire time. I remember most of the time sitting on my father's lap out of fear. Um, Great show, though, from what I can remember. In 2001, Disney re-released the film to IMAX for its 10th anniversary with an all-new sequence animated into the film with a new song, and I remember seeing the trailer on the projector of the first version of the Disney store in the Burlington mall. And I was either with my mother or my godmother, but I just remember without hesitation, just instantly reacting. We got to go. And this was back when IMAX theaters weren't as big as they are today. So we took, I believe we took the train all the way down to the Providence place mall to see it at the IMAX theater there. To me, it was like seeing this film for the first time again, because I never saw it in theaters before. And a film with beautiful animation like beauty and the beast has just looks amazing on a giant screen it also kind of renewed my interest and appreciation of the film because at the time i was a sixth grade boy i wasn't watching beauty and the beast that was for girls i was watching lion king and aladdin and all the pixar films but that's probably where like my love of the film was really cemented for years to come i mean Belle and the beast are just incredibly well-written characters as i'll get into later but the the side characters Lumiere, Cogsworth, Mrs. Potts—they're all incredibly like iconic and really fleshed out. Like, every, pretty much ninety percent of the cast is incredibly well developed, and they all get their time to shine. And I say like Lumiere and Cogsworth, like Lumiere and Cogsworth walked, so Timon and Pumbaa could run, if that makes sense. Like they were like they cemented the the uh, the trope of the iconic duos in Disney films. Um, and you know, the music by Alan Menken and Howard Ashman, Alan Menken has been behind the music for Disney films for decades. And I just think this is some of his best work here. And Howard Ashman too, like there's so many like catchy, iconic numbers that just get caught in your head for hours and hours after rewatching. And after the re-release in 2001 to IMAX in 2012, they put it in 3D and that was really interesting to see because they took a hand drawn animated film and made it 3D and it was it was surreal it looked like a storybook come to life on the big screen like like a virtual pop up book it was really it was something special to see for those that don't know the this podcast is recorded at Burlington Cable Access Television or Bcat or I am a production coordinator One of the things I did here at BCAT pre-COVID was run a program called the Cinema Series. they were basically part film lecture and part movie night, and they're a lot of fun. And, you know, I look forward to the day when we can have them here again safely. How they worked was each evening would start with a 10, 15-minute presentation on that night's film. Most of the time it would be me presenting, but there were a few other BCAT community members that were gracious and enthusiastic enough to present films for the series as well. But each presentation would cover the film's production history, its cultural significance, and then we'd all sit and watch the film as a group. And the first film ever presented at the cinema series by me was, you guessed it, Beauty and the Beast. Uh, Not only because it is my favorite film, and I do objectively think it is a culturally significant film, but the timing worked out because a week later, the live-action remake was hitting theaters. Now, about that live-action remake, in general, I'm not a fan of this current trend of live action remakes that has gone on at the Disney studio for the past like five or six years, but I I do cut this one some slack for subjective reasons. You know, I won't defend it to the death, but I do think it serves as a nice homage homage to the original. The casting is mostly great. The new arrangements of the music are great, but it doesn't do enough to stand on its own. So it's just a decent addition to the beauty and the beast legacy. And, I was personally able to connect with it. I remember when I saw it in theaters uh, right up until the BR guest sequence I was just kind of like, yeah, this is fine. They're just doing the same thing but in live action with some CGI. But yeah, then BR guest hit and something came over me and the the waterworks started flowing. I guess this is my analysis of it. Just seeing this scene that I'd known so well since childhood and made new before my eyes. I think that's what got to me and then the same thing happened again during the ballroom dance sequence and then the finale Um, I think this all sort of speaks to a deeper more personal connection I have with the film though you know this film is as old as I am and it sort of gives me a unique life perspective when I watch it you know I saw this film when I was 3 I saw it when I was 10 I saw it when I was 20 and last month I just watched it at the age of 30 and I watched it Countless other times in between. Um, And the film hasn't changed much since 1991, believe it or not, but I have quite a bit. Um, It's kind of a bittersweet and strange, and I hope you get that reference, a bittersweet and strange reflection sometimes when I rewatch Beauty and the Beast because I'm reminded of how much time has passed and how much I've changed. You know, I've grown up, I've gone to college, I've started a career, I've experienced love and loss in many ways. I've had my shares of ups and downs like anyone else and I'm definitely not the little kid falling asleep to a Beauty and the Beast cassette tape anymore. But as much as everything has changed as you know, time goes on, this film really hasn't, you know, if anything I'd say, it's gotten better in my eyes. Um, it's been a constant in my life and it also reminds me that as we go through life and time marches on, not everything changes or not everything has to change. And, you know, if this film is still good after 30 years, you know, maybe I am too. But on a less existential note, I think this film has a lot of important themes and values. One of the film's early posters had the tagline, The Greatest Love Story Ever Told, and I agree with that. The relationship between the two leads in this film, the love that they share, it's an unconditional love. It's not skin deep. It's built on a personal connection, on an emotional level. It's not love at first sight. It's not rooted in physical attraction. It's selfless and it's pure. They see each other for who they are and not what they look like. I think that's the kind of love we all strive to have in our lives, you know? know, And I also think the film says a lot about not just love, but a lot about self-worth and how we look at one another. Belle and the Beast are outcasts, each in their own right bell is a beautiful girl but she doesn't act like the other girls in town she wants to learn she wants to read she wants to do things for herself she's not throwing herself at all the guys like all the other girls in town she's her own person she's a bookworm she's a nerd and everyone thinks she's odd and so she feels like she has no one to connect to and then you have the beast who is a literal monster on the outside you know people take one look at him and they go he's a hideous creature he's an evil monster, get away from him. And so he shuts himself off from the outside world because society tells him he doesn't belong because he's different. He thinks he's not worthy of love because he does not look like a typical handsome prince. I think anyone at some point or another has felt themselves in Belle or the Beast position, or maybe both. Themes of unconditional love and acceptance run deep throughout the film, and these are values that have stuck with me throughout my life, and I think they're important to the folks behind the scenes, too. Lyricist Howard Ashman was also a producer on the film, and he helped shape the project to become the film we know today. Howard Ashman and Alan Menken were a legendary team at Disney in the late 80s and early 90s. They were the musical team behind not just Beauty and the Beast, but The Little Mermaid and Aladdin. But unfortunately, Howard would never live to see the final product of of Aladdin or Beauty and the Beast. If you ever get the chance, watch the documentary Howard on Disney+. Plus. It's a beautiful tribute to this man's life, but for those that don't know, Howard Ashman was gay, and shortly after the release of The Little Mermaid, he became sick and tested positive for HIV-AIDS. And the world was not as accepting as it is today, and back then the public was not kind to the LGBTQ community, and the epidemic of the HIV-AIDS virus only gave the mob more reason to go after these people. You know, there were vicious, cruel protests in the street. Howard saw this firsthand, and I think you can see him expressing his feelings about it in his work. The beast shelters himself away because the general public demonizes him. In the final act of the film, as the village mob heads to kill him, they sing, we don't like what we don't understand. In fact, it scares us. And you can sort of see that as commentary on how people in the LGBTQ community were treated or just how the general public always approaches anything or anyone that deviates from the norm Howard kept his sexual orientation and his illness secret from the studio as long as he could because he feared the social prosecution then finally it got to a point where he couldn't anymore he was getting so sick and the studio did all that they could so he could keep working on the project while being comfortable and seeking treatment you know the studio accepted this man for who he was they moved production across the country they had him on the phone giving note, notes during rehearsals when Pedro O'Hara was practicing like the songs for Bell. You know, this was a close-knit group of people, and they knew what this project meant to Howard. And it is unfortunate that Howard passed away in March of 1991 before the film was ever released, and it was dedicated in his memory. Whenever I think of Howard's story, I remember a line from Hamilton. You know What is a legacy? It's planting seeds in a garden you never get to see. And you look at the three films Howard worked on at Disney, Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, they've become such a huge part of not just Disney, but of film and pop culture. I, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find a person who hasn't been impacted by at least one of these three films. It is bittersweet that Howard never got to see how his work would live on for decades, but he does live on through his work. That's my little tangent on Howard Ashman, but to bring it back to focus... We use film art as a way to express ourselves when we make it, when we take it in, and when we share it with others. You know, I've always loved movies and I've always loved storytelling. And ever since I was young, I've been fascinated with the visual storytelling possibilities of not just film, but of television too. And bringing stories to life, you know, right from your imagination to the screen, right in front of you. So you're sharing, you know, your visual, like, your realization of your story comes to life on screen as you see it and that's how you get to share it with the world that's that's a very powerful thing i don't think a lot of us really you know notice that every now and then and with animation if you can visualize it you can bring it to life or i guess if you can draw it you can do it would beauty and the beast work if it wasn't animated i i think a few years ago we might have found the answer to that but I think what makes it work, you know, it's not the animation, it's not the CGI, it's not the casting. What makes it work more than anything is the story. And it's a story that has captivated audiences for over 30 years. I mean, an unfinished print of this film got a standing ovation when it was screened at the New York Film Festival in September of 1991. Just think about that. An unfinished print of a hand-drawn animated film... And got a standing ovation at the New York Film Festival. That's incredible. This was the first animated film to ever be nominated for Best Picture at the Academy Awards, and to this day, it's the only traditionally animated film to achieve that. Two computer animated films would follow suit and "Up" in 2009 with "Up" and "Toy Story 3" in 2010, both from Pixar. But "Beauty and the Beast helped cement the belief that animated films, or rather just animation in general, is not just for children. You know, the best animated films are not these, like, you know, replacement babysitters that, you know, you just stick your kids in front of for two hours and that keeps them quiet. No, the best animated films are the ones that can captivate both kids and adults. And I think Walt Disney himself knew that better than anyone, which brings me to my final point. I don't think a lot of people know this, but Walt Disney himself tried to bring Beauty and the Beast to life twice in the early years of the studio, but he could never crack the story. Frank Thomas, one of Walt Disney's nine original animators, once spoke about how in his later years, Walt was less interested in animation and more interested in building the theme parks and exploring the realm of television. Frank and the other animators were always trying to get Walt back into animation, but Walt always used to say, if I do ever go back to animation, there are only two subjects I would want to do, Beauty and the Beast and the other I can't remember. And it's almost poetic that Beauty and the Beast, a film that Walt initially tried to conceive, was the studio's biggest success since his passing. Beauty and the Beast is not only a massive achievement for film and animation, its themes of unconditional love and the value we all have as individuals still ring true to this day. These are ideas and beliefs I've carried with me throughout my life because this film has been a constant in my life and it will continue to be a constant in my life in the years to come. If you haven't seen it in a while or if you've never seen it, I suggest you give it a watch. Maybe even share it with your family and friends in the coming weeks. But that's it for me in this edition of Movies That Matter. I hope you've enjoyed my first solo outing on the podcast. This may not be the last episode of the year. I might have a guest or two coming in or maybe I might do another solo outing like this. But if this is the last episode of the year, I wish you a safe and happy holiday season and a happy and healthy new year to us all. If you want to get in touch with me about the show, whether it's a film suggestion or some comments and healthy criticisms, you can reach me at movies that matter pod at Gmail, and you can also follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at movies that matter pod. But just a little cliff note, if you're looking on Twitter, when you're spelling out movies that matter pod, uh, scratch the second T in that because apparently it was taken. So it's movies that matter pod. You got to say it with a weird accent. Or just follow us on Instagram, it's fine. Folks, the real world is no picnic right now. We're all fighting our own battles on top of this ongoing pandemic and all this contentious political social division. You know, Don't forget to love each other. And please, when things get hard, escape for a few hours into your favorite movie or TV show. You know, Don't listen to the critics and don't listen to the audiences. As I always say, make your own opinion. Just watch what you love. I'm your host, Chris Flaherty. This has been Movies That Matter. Thank you. Good night.